2019 is nearly over, and investors can breathe a sigh of relief. Though we're in the late stages of a bull market cycle, we've avoided an economic recession. The consumer sector is strong, and though we went into the year anticipating interest rate hikes from the Federal Reserve, we actually saw a series of rate cuts. The S&P 500 index of large U.S. stocks is on track to close the year with double-digit gains. Unemployment is low, and wages are up just a little bit. So is this as good as it gets? And what does that mean for investors in 2020? On this episode of The Bid, we'll speak with Tony Despirito, Portfolio Manager and Chief Investment Officer for BlackRock's U.S. Fundamental Active Equity Group. We'll talk about the outlook for markets in 2020, how tech and data are changing what it means to be an active stock picker, and his take on what exactly happens to markets in election cycles. I'm your host, Mary Catherine Later. We hope you enjoy. Tony, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So in your day-to-day professional life, you're a stock picker, to use an old-fashioned term. But you're also, of course, a personal investor. You're managing for your own retirement, for your daughter's college educations. Is how you operate as a personal investor different than what you do as a professional one? It's actually quite well aligned. I always start with time horizon. Are you investing for the next year or are you investing for three, five, ten years out? I'm a long-term investor, and I think that's important because the longer your investment horizon, the better off you are in equities. I think academics have done investors a disservice because they talk about risk in terms of monthly volatility. But as an equity investor, you're not investing for the next month. You're investing for the next three, five-plus years. And so we've done a study looking at volatility over extended periods of time for equities. And what you find is the longer your horizon, the lower the volatility of the equity returns basically tells you the longer your horizon is, the more you belong in equities. The other thing I think about is, okay, given the market opportunity today, what's better, stocks or bonds? And we're at a really unique point in time where you can actually get more income, in some cases, from stocks than bonds. So if you look at the 10-year treasury as we're recording this, it yields about 1.7, 1.8%. The dividend yield on the S&P 500 is 1.9%, so a little higher. But if you look at a more dividend-oriented index like the Russell 1000 Value Index, that has a yield of 2.5%. Now, if you think about the yield, the income over the next 10 years on the 10-year Treasury, it's fixed. Whereas in equities, if things go according to plan, the income from equities should roughly double over the next 10 years. That's a very big difference for investors. And then the last point I think about is alpha. I want my money to work as hard as it can for me without taking undue risk. We're shooting to perform above average, and that's an important concept. And so when I create my own personal portfolio, that's what I'm thinking about. When I create portfolios for our clients, it's the same thing. So when you say long time horizon, how long is long? Generally three to five years. When we look at companies, CEOs are doing three to five-year business plans. And so we look at the investments the same way as a CEO would. So speaking of longer time horizons, you've been in this business for nearly 25 years. And a lot has changed over that time. Back then, passive investing was really just getting started. Big data wasn't a thing. And so as each of these things has come to fruition, how's that changed how you think about investing? Yes, so a lot has changed. But most of the principles are the same. 
So one's information. Historically, there was a dearth of information. And your job, my job as a young analyst, was to find information. But increasingly, we live in a society of information overload. And the key to good sound investing is knowing which information applies to long-term opportunity and value of a company versus short-term noise. And discarding the short-term noise and not paying attention to it is actually the challenge. And I think that goes to market efficiency as well. I think the market has become hyper-efficient at the short end. If there is a piece of news out there, the market reacts really quickly. So I think it's a fool's game to try to trade around that. On the other hand, the market's become so obsessed with short-termism that that's left an opportunity at the longer end. And that's where we as fundamental investors play. I like to think of it as time horizon arbitrage. By having a longer time horizon than most investors, you can spot opportunities that a lot of them are discarding. That's actually better today, potentially, than historically. And then finally, you point out data. I think there's a real need to evolve as an investor. If you're doing the same thing today that you were doing three years ago, you're falling behind. We're putting together a mosaic of information. We're reading SEC filings. We're talking to company managements. We're doing field research. We're looking at data. And we've always looked at data. But as a society, we're collecting more and more data, and we have more and more computer processing power. So let's talk a little bit about those new types of data. I'm particularly curious for your view on ESG data. So environmental social governance factors, basically evaluating companies based on their performance against certain key performance indicators. It's really a nascent field. The data to support an ESG score is collected with a pretty blunt instrument today, like questionnaires, voluntary company disclosures. So how do you think about the quality of, for example, ESG data? I think we're in the early innings, and that's what's beautiful from an investor point of view. So there's a lot of data. Some of it's inconsistent. There's no regulatory standards around it. There are different data providers. They come up with different answers for the same companies. And that gives us a real place as fundamental investors to make judgments about where companies stand today with respect to these ESG factors, but also where they're going in the future and where they can improve on those factors and therefore improve as companies. It's become a very big topic. And I think what we'll see is the cost of capital changing If you're a good ESG company, the cost of capital will be lower. If you're a bad ESG company, the cost of capital will be higher. Switching gears to talk about the markets. Looking back a year from today, we saw huge volatility in equity markets and a significant dip in December of 2018. So as you look back at 2019, how does it compare? Yeah, to understand 2019, you have to really go back to what happened at the end of last year. And what we saw was a Fed that was very hawkish, that was raising rates, At the same time, we had global growth slowing. And so that created a a near-term panic, I'll say, in the markets. And we saw both stock markets and bond markets underperforming. And that's pretty unusual, actually, that they both underperformed together. Then at the beginning of this year, the Fed switched to a more dovish stance and has cut rates subsequently. And that's provided a real boost to the market. And so what we've really seen is just a correction of what happened last year. In terms of 2020, we look at the economy, and we are in the later innings of an economic cycle. But we're not at the end of an economic cycle, so we don't foresee a recession in 2020. And therefore, we expect markets to continue to grind higher. But given that we're near the later innings of an economic cycle, we do think prudence is important, right? You really better like what you own in your portfolio. And we've been emphasizing resiliency, which means more quality in the portfolio. Mm -hmm. So in talking about resilience, you mentioned quality. 
Quality is extremely subjective. So what exactly does it mean to you? It is. It does involve a lot of judgment. And for us, it means a couple of things. A quality business is one that earns significantly more than its cost of capital over the course of a cycle. A cyclical business can be quality, right? So it doesn't necessarily correlate 100% to stability. We also look a lot at balance sheets. When times are good, no one cares about balance sheets. But when times are bad, a strong balance sheet becomes incredibly critical. That's what provides resiliency. We also want improving free cash flow and earnings trends. And finally, you don't want to overpay. You could have all the quality in the world, but if you pay too much for it, your returns are going to suffer. So we want quality at a good price. So in what areas of the market do you see opportunity in 2020? I like to think of the portfolio in two buckets, stable earners on one hand and cyclical businesses on the other. On the stable earner side, a number of stable earners have been bid up in price. Those high prices create a risk. Think MinVol stock, think bond proxies. So when you think about minimum volatility stocks, you should think about stocks with low price volatility and bond proxy stocks that people are buying for yields. Good examples of these are utilities and also publicly traded real estate companies. On the flip side, within the stability bucket, healthcare really sticks out. It's one of the few stable areas that trades at reasonable prices. And then when you look at the underlying earnings, it's pretty impressive what you see. The demand for healthcare should only grow. It's almost a demographic certainty. We are aging as a society. As you get older, you consume more healthcare. So the demand is rock solid. The question is, how do we pay for it? It's tough because healthcare is growing as a percent of GDP. There's a lot of political debate about how we're going to pay for it. But if you look at history, we've been debating this since at least the early 90s, if not earlier. And ultimately, every time the government has tried to impose some kind of price controls, gridlock has prevailed. So I think this is a ripe area to continue to grow. On the economically sensitive side, we really like the money center banks. There's a real muscle memory in the market. The market remembers what happened to the money center banks in the global financial crisis. But these banks have really changed their stripes quite a bit. Most notably, I'd point to capital ratios. The amount of capital cushion that they retain is roughly 60 to 70% higher than it's ever been. That makes them safer and sounder. And we think that makes them a good investment. And then you look at the free cash flow. The free cash flow yields are 8, 9, 10%. That's extremely high, particularly in a world where bond yields are sub 2%. That's through a combination of dividends and buybacks. And so we think that's also a very fertile area for investment. So healthcare, financial services, these are huge topics for presidential candidates right now. When do you think we'll see markets start to react to the election? Well, we've started to see some, but the market does tend to focus only on one or two things at a time. I think that'll definitely heat up at the beginning of next year. We have our first primaries and then ultimately the presidential election. So I think there'll be a lot of talk. There will be some volatility around that, but I think the volatility will create buying opportunities. Looking back at previous elections, what's the sort of conventional wisdom on their impact on markets? So we've looked at the presidential cycle as it relates to stock returns going back to the 1920s. And there's a real pattern. And the pattern is the stock market does well in all years, except for the second year of a president's term. And that is totally corresponded to what's happened during the Trump presidency. As we pointed out earlier, 2018 was a tough year for stocks. And that's exactly what the data on the presidential election cycle would show you. The same data would tell you that 2020 will be just fine. Why do you think that is? 
Well, the conspiracy theory would be that it behooves all of the politicians, both the president and congressional members who are up for re-election, to really boost the economy in that final year so they all can get re-elected. Looking back in terms of headlines creating volatility, a persistent theme in 2019 was U.S.-China trade tension. So as you sort of look back at the last 11 months, to what extent do you think that really did move markets and what was the ultimate response? Global growth has definitely been slower because of trade tensions. Unfortunately, I see this as a long-term issue, the competition both economically and politically between China and the U.S., and I don't see it going away. I do think we will get a deal, but it'll be a deal with a small d, and it won't resolve all our problems. That being said, you know, if you look at the history of investing over the last 10, 20, 30, 50, even 100 years, there's always been something like this for investors to focus on and worry about. But in general, corporations adjust, profits still grow, the economies still grow, and markets go up. And it really speaks to the importance of staying in the market, being a long-term investor, and don't trade around events like this. So one last question. What are the biggest unknowns for you going into 2020, and how does that impact your investment approach? I think an interesting unknown is the potential for greater inflation. Mm-hmm. You know, we've been in an environment of low for longer for about a decade now. Fewer and fewer investors remember what it was like to have inflation in the United States. I don't think it's a huge risk, but, you know, if you look at the number of strikes we've had this year, it's actually the most since, I think, about 2004. So you're starting to see that happening. You're starting to see some wage pressure. Unemployment is sub 4% and has been for a while. So I think that could be the kind of unexpected event of 2020. Okay, so I'm going to end with a rapid-fire round of more personal questions. You ready? Okay. So I gather that you're the youngest of 40 grandchildren, which is incredible. What's the best lesson you learned from your grandparents? Yeah, so it's the importance of history, actually. Three out of my four grandparents were born in the 1800s, believe it or not. And so there's a great Winston Churchill quote that it makes me think about, which is the further back you look in history, the farther forward you can see in the future. Mm-hmm. That really applies to my investment philosophy and style. Okay, so looking forward, what advice do you give your three daughters about investing? We talked about data and how that's growing in importance. I think math is an incredible skill, and so I've encouraged all three of my daughters to study hard and to excel in math because I think that you know, with more data over time, math just becomes more and more important. What's your favorite way to spend a day when you're not in the office? So I love being outside. It's a great way to rejuvenate. I spend a lot of time walking my dog, Pepper. Um, We also, as a family, spend a lot of time in the Adirondacks. And that's both summer and winter. So in the summer, we're out on the water, on a lake, in a boat, swimming, hiking. And then in the winter, we do a lot of skiing, snowshoeing, even ice fishing. So I'm going to guess that when you take Pepper for a walk, you're sometimes listening to podcasts. So, I do. Okay. I do. So what are your favorite podcasts? So I'm a big podcast fan. <laughs> also Audible, audiobooks. Obviously, The Bid is at the top of <laughs> the list. Great answer. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> I also like Columbia. The MBA program has a pretty good podcast. And then personally, I also like Tim Ferriss. I love Life Hacks, and that's what he's about. Totally. I love that one, too. Thank you so much for joining us today, Tony. It's been an absolute pleasure having you. Thank you. The pleasure's all mine. This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by BlackRock. 
is not intended to be relied upon as a forecast, research, or investment advice, and is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. The information and opinions contained in this material are derived from proprietary and non-proprietary sources deemed by BlackRock to be reliable and are not guaranteed as to accuracy or completeness. This material may contain forward-looking information that is not purely historical in nature. There is no guarantee that any forecast made will come to pass. Reliance upon information in this material is at the sole discretion of the listener. Past performance is not indicative of current or future results. This information provided is neither tax nor legal advice, and investors should consult with their own advisors before making investment decisions. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, and you may not get back the amount invested. In the U.S. and Canada, this material is intended for public distribution. In the U.K., this is issued by BlackRock Investment Management U.K. Limited, authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, registered office, 12 Throgmorton Avenue, London, EC2N, 2DL, telephone, plus 44020-7743-3000, registered in England and Wales, number 202-0394. For your protection, telephone calls are usually recorded. BlackRock is a trading name of BlackRock Investment Management UK Limited. In Singapore, this is issued by BlackRock Singapore Limited, co-registration number 2000-10143N. In Hong Kong, this material is issued by BlackRock Asset Management North Asia Limited and has not been reviewed by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong. In Australia, issued by BlackRock Investment Management Australia Limited, ABN 13-006-165-975-AFSL, 230523 BIMAL. The material provides general information only and does not take into account your individual objectives, financial situation, needs, or circumstances. In Latin America, this material is for educational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice nor an offer or solicitation to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any shares of any fund. No securities regulators in Latin America have confirmed the accuracy of any information contained herein. The provision of investment management and investment advisory services is a regulated activity in Mexico, thus is subject to strict rules. For more information on the investment advisory services offered by BlackRock Mexico, please refer to the Investment Services Guide, available at www.blackrock.com mx. Copyright 2019, BlackRock Inc. All rights reserved. BlackRock is a registered trademark of BlackRock Inc. All other trademarks are those of their respective owners.